Chapter 10, The Marauder's Map Madame Pomfrey insisted on keeping Harry in the hospital wing for the rest of the weekend. He didn't argue or complain, but he wouldn't let her throw away the shattered remnants of his Nimbus 2000. He knew he was being stupid, knew that the Nimbus was beyond repair, but Harry couldn't help it. He felt as though he'd lost one of his best friends. He had a stream of visitors, all intent of cheering him up. Hagrid sent him a bunch of earwiggy flowers that looked like yellow cabbages, and Jen Weasley, blushing furiously, turned up with a great well card, get well card that she had made herself, which sang shrilly unless Harry kept it shut under his bowl of fruit. The Gryffindor team visited again on Sunday morning, this time accompanied by Wood, who told Harry, in a hollow, dead sort of voice, that he didn't blame him in the slightest. Ron and Hermione left Harry's bedside only at night. But nothing anyone said or did could make Harry feel better because they knew only half of what was troubling him. He hadn't told anyone about the Grimm, not even Ron and Hermione, because he knew Ron would panic and Hermione would scoff. The fact remained, however, that it now appeared twice and both appearances had been followed by a near fatal accident. The first time he had nearly been run over by the night bus the second, fallen 50 feet from his broomstick. Was the Grimm going to haunt him until he actually died? Was he going to spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulders for the beast? And then there was the Dementors. Harry felt sick and humiliated every time he thought of them. Everyone said the Dementors were horrible, but no one else collapsed every time they went near one. No one else heard echoes in their heads of their dying parents. Because Harry knew who that screaming voice belonged to now, he had heard her words, heard them over and over again during the night hours in the hospital wing while he lay awake, staring at the strips of moonlight on the ceiling. When the Dementors approached him, he heard the last moments of his mother's life, her attempts to protect him, Harry, from Lord Voldemort. Voldemort's laughter before he murdered her. Harry dozed fitfully, sinking into dreams full of clammy, rotted hands and petrified pleading, jerking away to dwell again on his mother's voice. It was a relief to return to the noise and bustle of the main school on Monday, where he was forced to think about other things, even if he had to endure Draco Malfoy's taunting. Malfoy was almost beside himself with glee at Gryffindor's defeat. He had finally taken off his bandages and celebrated having the full use of both arms again by doing spirited imitations of Harry falling off his broom. Malfoy spent much of the next potions class doing Dementor imitations across the dungeon. Ron finally cracked and flung a large, slippery crocodile heart at Malfoy, which hit him in the face and caused Snape to take 50 points from Gryffindor. If Snape's teaching defense against the dark arts again, I'm skiving off, said Ron as they headed towards Lupin's classroom after lunch. Check who's in here, Hermione. Hermione peered around the classroom door. It's okay. Professor Lupin was back at work. It certainly looked as though he had been ill. His old robes were hanging more loosely on him, and there were dark shadows beneath his eyes. Nevertheless, he smiled at the class as they took their seats, and they burst at once into an explosion of complaints about Snape's behavior while Lupin had been ill. Not fair. He was only filling in. Why should he give us homework? We don't know anything about werewolves. Two rolls of parchment. Did you tell Professor Snape we haven't covered them yet? Lupin asked, frowning slightly. The babble broke out again. Yes, but he said we were really behind. He wouldn't listen. Two rolls of parchment. Professor Lupin smiled at the look of indignation on every face. Don't worry, I'll speak to Professor Snape. You don't have to do the essay. 
Oh, no, said Hermione, looking very disappointed. I already finished it. They had a very enjoyable lesson. Professor Lupin had brought along a glass box containing a hinky punk, a little one-legged creature who looked as though he were made of wisps of smoke, rather frail and harmless looking. Lures travelers into bogs, said Professor Lupin as they took notes. You notice the lantern dangling, dangling from his hand? Hops ahead, people follow the light, and then... The hinky punk made a horrible squelching noise against the glass. When the bell rang, everyone gathered up their things and headed for the door. Harry among them, but... Wait a minute, Harry, Lupin called. I'd like a word. Harry doubled back and watched Professor Lupin covering the hinky punk's box with a cloth. I heard about the match, said Lupin, turning back to his desk and staring at a pile of books into his briefcase. And I'm sorry about your broomstick. Is there any chance of fixing it? No, said Harry. The tree smashed it to bits. Lupin sighed. They planted the Whomping Willow the same year that I arrived at Hogwarts. People used to play a game trying to get near enough to touch the trunk. In the end, a boy called Davy Gudgeon nearly lost an eye and were forbidden to go near it. No broomstick would have had a chance. Did you hear about the Dementors, too? said Harry with difficulty. Lupin looked at him quickly. Yes, I did. I don't think any of us have seen Professor Dumbledore that angry. They have been growing restless for some time, furious at his refusal to let them inside the grounds. I suppose they were the reason you fell? Yes, said Harry. He hesitated. Then the question he had to ask burst from him before he could stop himself. Why? Why do they affect me like that? Am I just... It has nothing to do with the weakness, said Professor Lupin sharply, as though he had read Harry's mind. The Dementors affect you worse than the others because there are horrors in your past that others don't have. A ray of wintry sunlight flew across the classroom, illuminating Lupin's gray hairs and the lines on his young face. The Dementors are among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace and hope and happiness out of the air around them. Even muggles feel their presence, though they can't see them. Get too near a Dementor and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. You'll be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life and the worst that happened to you. Harry is enough to make anyone fall off a broom. You have nothing to feel ashamed of. When they get near me, Harry stared at Lupin's desk, his throat tight. I can hear Voldemort murdering my mom. Lupin made a sudden motion with his arm as though to grip Harry's shoulder, but thought better of it. There was a moment of silence, and then... Why did they have to come to the match? said Harry bitterly. They're getting hungry, said Lupin coolly, shutting his briefcase with a snap. Dumbledore won't let them into the school, so their supply of human prey has dried up. I don't think they could resist the large crowd around the Quidditch field. All that excitement, emotions running high. It was their idea of a feast. Azkaban must be terrible, Harry muttered. Lupin nodded grimly. The fortress is set on a tiny island way out to sea. But they don't need walls and water to keep the prisoners in. Not when they're all trapped inside their own heads. Incapable of a single cheerful thought. Most of them go mad within weeks. But Sirius Black escaped from them, Harry said slowly. He got away. Lupin briefcase slipped from the desk. He had to stoop quickly to catch it. Yes, he said, straightening up. Black must have found a way to fight them. 
I wouldn't have believed it's possible. Dementors are supposed to drain a wizard of his powers if he's left with them too long. You made that Dementor on the train back off, said Harry suddenly. There are certain defenses one can use, said Lupin. But there was only one Dementor on the train. The more there are, the more difficult it becomes to resist. What defenses, said Harry once, can you teach me? I don't pretend to be an expert at fighting Dementors, Harry. Quite the contrary. But if the Dementors come to another Quidditch match, I need to be able to fight them. Lupin looked into Harry's determined face, hesitated, and then said, Well, all right, I'll try to help, but it'll have to wait until next term. I'm afraid I have a lot to do before the holidays. I chose a very inconvenient time to fall ill. What was the promise of anti-dementor lessons from Lupin? The thought that he might never have to hear his mother's death again and the fact that Ravenclaw flattened Hufflepuff in their Quidditch match at the end of November? Harry's mood took a definite upturn. Gryffindor were not out of the running after all, and although they could not afford to lose another match, Wood became repossessed of his manic energy and worked his team as hard as ever in the chilly haze of rain that persisted into December. Harry saw no hint of the Dementor within the grounds. Dumbledore's anger seemed to be keeping them at their stations at the entrance. Two weeks before the end of the term, the sky lightened suddenly into a dazzling opaline white, and the muddy grounds were revealed one morning, covered in glittering frost. Inside the castle, there was a buzz of Christmas in the air. Professor Flitwick, the charms teacher, had already decorated his classroom with shimmering lights that turned out to be real, fluttering fairies. The students were all happily discussing their plans for the holidays. Both Ron and Hermione had decided to remain at Hogwarts, and though Ron said it was because he couldn't stand two weeks with Percy, Hermione insisted she needed to use the library. Harry wasn't fooled. They were doing it to keep him company, and he was very grateful. To everyone's delight, except Harry's, there was to be another Hogsmeade trip on the very last weekend of the term. We can do all our Christmas shopping there, said Hermione. Mom and Dad would really love those tooth-flossing stringments from Honeydukes. Resigned to the fact that he could be the only third year staying behind again, Harry borrowed a copy of Witch Broomstick from Wood and decided to spend the day reading up on different makes. He had been riding one of the school's brooms at team practice, an ancient shooting star which was very slow and jerky. He definitely needed a new broom of his own. On the Saturday morning of the Hogsmeade trip, Harry bid goodbye to Ron and Hermione, who were wrapped in cloaks and scarves, and then turned up the marble staircase alone, and headed back towards Gryffindor Tower. Snow had started to fall outside the windows, and the castle was very still and quiet. Psst, Harry! He turned halfway along the third-floor corridor to see Fred and George peering out at him from behind the statue of the hump-backed, one-eyed witch. "'What are you doing?' said Harry curiously. How come you're not going to Hogsmeade? We've come to give you a bit of a festive cheer before we go, said Fred with a mysterious wink. Come in here. He nodded towards an empty classroom to the left of the one-eyed statue, and Harry followed Fred and George inside. George closed the door quietly and then turned, beaming to look at Harry. Early Christmas present for you, Harry, he said. Fred pulled something from inside his cloak with a flourish and laid it on one of the desks. It was a large, square, very worn piece of parchment with nothing written on it. Harry, suspecting one of Fred and George's jokes, stared at it. What's that supposed to be? This, Harry, is the secret of our success, said George, patting the parchment fondly. 
It's a wrench giving it to you, said Fred, but we decided last night your needs are greater than ours. Anyway, we know it by heart, said George. We bequeath it to you. We don't really need it anymore. And what do I need with a bit of old parchment, said Harry. Bit of old parchment, said George, closing his eyes, grimace as though Harry had mortally offended him. Explain, Fred. Well, when we were in our first year, Harry, young, carefree, and innocent, Harry snorted. He doubted whether Fred and George had ever been innocent. Well, more innocent than we are now. We got into a spot of bother with Flitch. We left off a dung bomb in the corridor and it upset him for some reason. So he hauled us off to his office and started threatening us with the usual detention, disembowelment, and we couldn't help notice a drawer in one of his filing cabinets marked confiscated and highly dangerous. Don't tell me, said Harry, starting to grin. Well, what would you have done, said Fred. George caused a diversion by dropping another dung bomb, and I whipped the drawer open and grabbed this. It's not as bad as it sounds, you know, said George. We don't reckon Flitch ever found out how it worked. He probably suspected what it was, though, and he wouldn't have confiscated it. And you know how to work it? Oh, yes, said Fred, smirking. This little beauty taught us more than all the teachers in the school. You're winding me up, said Harry, looking at the ragged old bit of parchment. Oh, are we? said George. He took out his wand and touched the parchment lightly and said, I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. Not once the thin ink lines began to spread like a spider's web from the point that George's wand had touched. They joined each other and they crisscrossed and they fanned into every corner of the parchment. Then words began to blossom across the top, great curly green words that proclaimed, Mercer's Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Purveyors of aids to magical mischief makers are proud to present the Marauder's Map. It was a map showing every detail of Hogwarts Castle and grounds. But the truly remarkable thing were the tiny ink dots moving around, each label with a name in minuscule writing. Astounded, Harry bent over it. A labeled dot in the top left corner showed that Professor Dumbledore was pacing in the study. The caretaker's cat, Mrs. Norris, was prowling on the second floor, and Peeves, the poltergeist, was currently bouncing around the trophy room. And, as Harry's eyes traveled up and down the familiar corridors, he noticed something else. The map showed a set of passages he had never entered, and many of them seemed to lead right into Hogsmeade, said Fred, tracing one of them with his finger. There are seven in all. Now Flitch knows about these four, he pointed them out. But we're sure we're the only ones who know about these. Don't bother with the one behind the mirror on the fourth floor. We used it last winter, but it caved in, completely blocked. And we don't reckon anyone's ever used this one, because there's the Whomping Willow planted right over the entrance. But this one here, this one leads right into the cellar of Honeydukes. We used it loads of times. And you might have noticed the entrance is right outside this room, through the one-eyed old crone's hump. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prong, sighed George, patting the heading of the map. We owe them so much. Noble men, working tirelessly to help a new generation of lawbreakers, said Fred solemnly. Right, said George briskly. Don't forget to wipe it after you used it. Or anyone can read it, Fred said warningly. Just tap it again and say, mischief managed, and it will go blank. So, young Harry, said Fred in an uncanny impersonation of Percy. 
Mind you, behave yourself. See you in Honeydukes, said George, winking. They left the room, both smirking in a satisfied sort of way. Harry stood there, gazing at the miraculous map. He watched the tiny ink Miss Norris turned, left, and paused to sniff at something on the floor. If Filch really didn't know, he wouldn't have to pass the Dementors at all. But even as he stood there, flooded with excitement, something Harry had once heard Mr. Weasley say came floating out into his memory. Never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. This map was one of those dangerous magical objects Mr. Weasley had been warning against. Aids for magical mischief makers. But then Harry reasoned he only wanted to use it to get into Hogsmeade. It wasn't as though he wanted to steal anything or attack anyone, and Fred and George had been using it for years without anything horrible happening. Harry traced the secret passage to Honey Dukes with his finger. Then, quite suddenly, as though following orders, he rolled up the map, stuffed it inside his robe, and hurried to the door of the classroom. He opened it a couple of inches. There was no one inside. Very carefully, he edged out of the room and behind the statue of the one-eyed witch. What did he have to do? He pulled out the map again and saw to his astonishment that a new ink figure had appeared upon it, labeled Harry Potter. This figure was standing exactly where the real Harry was standing, about halfway down the third floor corridor. Harry watched carefully. His little ink self appeared to be tapping the witch with his minute wand. Harry quickly took out his real wand and tapped the statue. Nothing happened. He looked back at the map. The tiniest speech bubble had appeared next to his figure. The word inside said, Descendium. Descendium, Harry whispered, tapping the stone witch again. And at once, the statue's hump opened wide enough to admit a fairly thin person. Harry glanced quickly up and down the corridor and then tucked the map away again, hoisted himself into the hole headfirst and pushed himself forward. He slid a considerable way down what felt like a stone slide, then landed on a cold, damp earth. He stood up looking around. It was pitch dark. He held up his wand and muttered, Lumos, and saw that he was in a very narrow, low, earthy passageway. He raised the map, tapped it with the tip of his wand, and muttered, Mischief managed. The map went blank at once. He folded it carefully and tucked it inside his robes. Then, heart beating fast, both excited and apprehensive, he set off. The passage twisted and turned more like the burrow of a giant rabbit than anything else. Harry heard a long bit, stumbling now and then on the uneven floor, holding his wand out in front of him. It took ages, but Harry had thought of Honeydukes to sustain him. After what felt like an hour, the passage began to rise. Panting, Harry sped up, his face hot, his feet very cold. Ten minutes later, he came to the foot of some worn stone steps, which rose out of sight above him. Carefully not to make any noise, Harry began to climb. A hundred steps, two hundred steps, he lost count as he climbed and watching his feet. Then, without warning, his head hit something hard. It seemed to be a trap door. Harry stood there, massaging the top of his head, listening. He couldn't hear any sounds above him. Very slowly, he pushed the trap door open and peered over the edge. He was in the cellar, which was full of wooden crates and boxes. Harry climbed out of the trapdoor and replaced it. It blended so perfectly with the dusty floor that it was impossible to tell where it was. Harry crept slowly towards the wooden staircase that led upstairs. Now he could definitely hear voices, not to mention the tinkle of a bell and the opening and shutting of a door. Wondering what he ought to do, he suddenly heard a door open much closer at hand. Somebody was about to come downstairs.
and get another box of the jelly slugs, dear. They're nearly cleaned us out, said a woman's voice. A pair of feet was coming down the staircase. Harry leapt behind an enormous crate and waited for the footsteps to pass. He heard the man shifting boxes against the opposite wall. He might not get another chance. Quickly and silently, Harry dodged out from his hiding place and climbed the stairs. Looking back, he saw an enormous backside and a shiny bald head buried in the box. Harry reached the door at the top of the stairs and slipped through it and found himself behind the counter of Honeydukes. He ducked, crept sideways, and then straightened up. Honeydukes was so crowded with Hogwarts students that no one looked twice at Harry. He edged among them, looking around, and suppressed a laugh as he managed to look that would spread over Dudley Piggy's face if he could see Harry was up to now. There were shelves upon shelves of the most succulent-looking sweets imaginable. Creamy chunks of nougat, shimmering pink squares of coconut ice, fat honey-colored toffees, hundreds of different kinds of chocolates and neat rows. There were large barrels of every flavor beans and another of fizzing whizbies, the levitating sherbet balls that Ron had mentioned. Along yet another wall were special effect sweets, dribble best blowing gum, which filled a room with bluebell colored bubbles that refused to pop for days. With strange splintery tooth flossing string mints, tiny black pepper imps, breathe fire for your friends, ice mice, hear your teeth chattering and squeak, peppermint cream shaped like toads hop realistically in the stomach, fragile sugar spun quills and explode in bonbons. Harry squeezed himself through a crowd of six years and saw a sign hanging in the furthest corner of the shop. Unusual tastes. Ron and Hermione were standing underneath it, examining a tray of blood-flavored lollipops. Harry sneaked up behind them. Oh no, Harry won't want one of those. They're for vampires, I expect, Hermione was saying. How about these, said Ron, shoving a jar of cockroach clusters under Hermione's nose. Definitely not, said Harry. Ron nearly dropped the jar. Harry, squealed Hermione, what are you doing here? How how did you... Wow, said Ron, looking very impressed. You learned to appretate. Of course I haven't, said Harry. He dropped his voice so that none of the six years could hear him and told them all about Marauder's Map. How come Fred and George never gave it to me, said Ron, outraged. I'm their brother. But Harry isn't going to keep it, said Hermione, as though the idea were ludicrous. He's going to hand it in to Professor McGonagall, aren't you? No, I'm not, said Harry. You mad, said Ron, goggling at Hermione, handing something that good? If I hand it in, I'll have to say where I got it. Fletch would know that Fred and George had nicked it. But what about Sirius Black, Hermione hissed. He could be using one of the passages on the map to get into the castle. The teachers have to and got to know. He can't be getting in through a passage. There are seven secret tunnels on the map, right? George and Fred reckon Flosh already knows about four of them. And the other three, one of them's caved in and so no one can get through it. And one of them's got the Whomping Willow planted over the entrance. So you can't get out of it. And the one I just came through, well, it's really hard to see the entrance to it down in the cellar. So unless he knew it was there, Harry hesitated. What if Black did know the passage was there? Ron, however, cleared his throat significantly and post pointed to a notice pasted on the side of the sweet shop door. By order of the Ministry of Magic, customers are reminded that until further notice, Dementors will be patrolling the streets of Hogmeade every night after sundown. This measure has been put in place for the safety of Hogsmeade's residents and will be lifted upon the recapture of Sirius Black. It is therefore advisable that you complete your shopping well before nightfall. Merry Christmas. 
See, said Ron quietly. I'd like to see Black try and break into hon Honeydukes with Dementors swarming all over the village. Anyway, Hermione, the Honeydukes owners would hear a break-in, wouldn't they? They live over the shop. Yes, but, but Hermione seemed to be struggling to find another problem. Look, Harry still shouldn't be going and coming into Hogsmeade. He hasn't got a signed form, and if anyone finds out, he'll be in so much trouble. And it's not nightfall yet. What if Sirius Black turns up today? Now. He'd have a job spotting Harry in this, said Ron, nodding through the mullied windows at the thick, swirling snow. Come on, Hermione, it's Christmas. Harry deserves a break. Hermione bit her lip, looking extremely worried. Are you going to report me? Harry asked her, grinning. Oh, of course not, but honestly, Harry. Seen the fizzing whizbees, Harry, said Ron, grabbing him and leading him over to the barrel, and the jelly slugs and the acid pops. Fred gave me one of those when I was seven. It burnt a hole right through my tongue. I remember Mum whomping him with her broomstick. Ron said broodingly into the acid pop box. Reckon friend takes a bit of cockroach clusters if I told him they were peanuts. When Ron and Hermione had paid for all their sweets, the three of them left Honey Dukes for the blizzard outside. Hogsmeade looked like a Christmas card. The little thatched cottages and shops were all covered in a layer of crisp snow. There were holy wreaths on the door and strings of attached candles hanging in the trees. Harry shivered. Unlike the other two, he didn't have his cloak. They headed up the street, heads bowed against the wind, Ron and Hermione shouting through their scarves. That's the post office. Zonk is up there. We could go up to the Shrieking Shack. Tell you what, said Ron, his teeth chatting. Shall we go for a butterbeer and the three broomsticks? Harry was more than willing. The wind was fierce and his hands were freezing, so they crossed the road. In a few minutes, we're entering a tiny inn. It was extremely crowded, noisy, warm, smoky. A curvy sort of woman with a pretty face was serving a bunch of rowdy warlocks up the bar. That's Madame Rosmerda, said Ron. I'll get the drink, shall I? He added, going slightly red. Harry and Hermione made their way to the back of the room where there was a small vacant table between the window and a handsome Christmas tree, which stood next to the fireplace. Ron came back five minutes later, carrying three foaming tankers of hot butter beer. Merry Christmas, he said happily, raising his tanker. Harry drank deeply. It was the most delicious thing he had ever tasted and seemed to heat every bit of him from the inside. A sudden breeze ruffled his hair. The door of the three broomsticks had opened again. Harry looked over the rim of his tankard and choked. Professor McGonagall and Flitwick had just entered the pub with a flurry of snowflakes shortly followed by Hagrid, who was deep in conversation with a portly man in a lime green bowler hat and pinch-striped cloak, Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic. In an instant, Ron and Hermione had both placed hands on top of Harry's head and forced him off the stool and under the table. Dripping with butterbeer and crouching out of sight, Harry clutched his empty tankard and watched the teachers and fudge feet move towards the bar, pause, and turn and walk right towards him. Somewhere above him, Hermione whispered, Mobliarbus. The Christmas tree beside their table rose a few inches off the ground, drifted sideways, and landed with a soft thump right in front of their table, hiding them from view. Staring through the dense lower branches, Harry saw four sets of chairs, legs moved back from the table right besides there, then heard the grunts and sighs of the teachers and minister as they sat down. Next, he saw another pair of feet wearing sparkly turquoise high heels and heard a woman's voice. A small gillywater, 
mine, said Professor McGonagall's voice. Four pints of mold mead? Ta, Rosemary, said Hagrid. A cherry syrup soda with ice and umbrella. Mmm, said Professor Flitwick, smacking his lips. So, you'll be the red current, rum minister. Thank you, Rosemary, my dear, said Fudge's voice. Lovely to see you again, I must say. Have one yourself, won't you, and come join us. Well, thank you very much, minister. Harry watched the glittering heels march away and back again. His heart was pounding uncomfortably in his throat. Why hadn't he occurred to him that this was the last weekend of term for the teachers, too? And how long were they going to sit there? He needed time to sneak back into Honeydukes if he wanted to return to school tonight. Hermione's leg gave a nervous twitch next to him. So, what brings you to this neck of the woods, minister, came Madame Rosemary's voice. Harry saw the lower part of Fudge's thick body twist in his chair as though he was checking for eavesdroppers. Then he said in a quiet voice, Well, my dear, but serious black, I dare say you heard what happened up at the school at Halloween. I did hear a rumor, admitted Madame Rosemary. Did you tell the whole pub, Hagrid? said Professor McGonagall. Do you think Black's still in the area, Minister? whispered Madame Rosemary. I'm sure of it, said Fudge shortly. You know that the Dementors have searched my pub twice, said Madame Rosetta. A slight edge to her voice scared all my customers away. It's very bad for business, Minister. Rosetta, my dear, I don't like them any more than you do, said Fudge uncomfortably. Necessary precautions, unfortunate. But there you are. I've just met some of them. They're in a fury against Dumbledore. He won't let them inside the castle grounds. I should think not, said Professor McGonagall sharply. How are we supposed to teach with those horrors floating around? Here, here, squeaked tiny Professor Flitwick, whose feet were dangling a foot from the ground. All the same, demurred Fudge, they are here to protect you all from something much worse. We all know what Black's capable of. Do you know I still have trouble believing it, said Madame Rosmerta thoughtfully. Of all the people to go over to the dark side, Sirius Black was the last I would have thought. I mean, I remember when he was a boy at Hogwarts. If you told me that he was going to go and become, I'd have said you'd have too much mead. You don't know the half of it, Rosmerta fudged gruffly. The worst, he did it, isn't widely known. The worst, said Madame Rosemerda, her voice alive with curiosity. Worse than murdering all those poor people, you mean? I certainly do, said Fudge. I can't believe that. What could possibly be worse? You say you remember him at Hogwarts, Rosemerda, murmured Professor McGonagall. Do you remember who his best friend was? Naturally, said Madame Rosemerda with a small laugh. Never saw one without the other, did you? The number of times I had them in here, oh... They used to make me laugh. Quite the double act, Sirius Black and James Potter. Harry dropped his tankard with a loud clunk. Ron kicked him. Precisely, said Professor McGonagall. Black and Potter, ringleaders of their little gang. Both very bright, of course. Exceptionally bright, in fact. But I don't think we ever had such a pair of troublemakers. Oh, no, no, chuckled Hagrid. Fred and George Weasley could give them a run for their money. You'd have thought Black and Potter were brothers, chimed in Professor Flitwick. Inseparable. Of course they were, said Fudge. Potter trusted Black beyond all his other friends. Nothing changed when they left school. Black was the best man when James married Lily. Then they named him godfather to Harry. Harry has no idea, of course. You can imagine how the idea would torment him. 
Because Black turned out to be in league with you-know-who, whispered Madame Rosmerda. Worse, even that, my dear, Fudge dropped his voice and proceeded in a sort of low rumble. Not many people are aware that the Potters knew you-know-who was after them. Dumbledore, who was of course working tirelessly against you-know-who, had a number of useful spies. One of them tipped off, and he allured James and Lily at once. He advised them to go into hiding. Well, of course, you-know-who wasn't an easy person to hide from. Dumbledore told them that their best chance was the fiddliest charm. How does that work? said Madame Rosmerda, breathless, with interest. Professor Flitwick cleared his throat. An immensely complicated charm, he said squeakily, involving the magical concealment of a secret inside a single living soul. The information is hidden inside the chosen person, or a secret keeper, and is henceforth impossible to find, unless, of course, the secret keeper chooses to divulge it. As long as the secret keeper refused to speak to you-know-who, could search the village where Lily and James were staying for years and never find them, not even if he had his nose pressed against their sitting room window. So, Black was the potter's secret keeper, whispered Madame Rosmerda. Naturally, said Professor McGonagall. James Potter told Dumbledore that Black would die rather than tell them where they were, that Black was planning to go into hiding himself, and yet Dumbledore remained worried. I remember him offering to be the Potter's secret keeper himself. He suspected Black? gasped Madame Rosemary. He was sure that somebody close to the Potters had been keeping you-know-who informed of their movement, said Professor McGonagall darkly. Indeed, he had suspected for some time that someone on our side had turned traitor and was passing a lot of information to you-know-who. But James Potter insisted on using Black. He did, said Fudge heavily, and then barely a week after the fiddlest charm had been performed, Black betrayed them, breathed Madame Rosemary. He did indeed. Black was tired of his double agent role. He was ready to declare his support openly for you-know-who, and he seems to have planned this for a moment of the Potter's death. But as we all know, you-know-who met his downfall in Little Harry Potter, powers gone, horribly weakened as he fled, and this left Black in a very nasty position indeed. His master had fallen at the very moment when he, Black, had shown his true colors as a traitor. He had no choice but to run for it. Filthy, stinking turncoat, Hagrid said so loudly that half the bar went quiet. Shh, said Professor McGonagall. I met him, growled Hagrid. Must have been the last time seeing before he killed all the people. It was me that rescued Harry from Lily and James' house after they killed. Just got him out of the ruins, poor little thing, with a great slash across his forehead and his parents dead. And Sirius Black turns up on the flying motorbike he used to ride. Never occurred to me what he was doing there. I didn't know he had been Lillian James' secret keeper, though he just heard the news of you-know-who's attack and come to see what he could do. White and shaken he was. And you know what I did? I comforted the murdering traitor. Hagrid roared. Hagrid, please, said Professor McGonagall. Keep your voice down. How was I to know he wasn't upset about Lillian James? It was you-know-who he cared about. And then he says, Give Harry to me, Hagrid. I'm his godfather. I'll look after him. Ha! But I had my orders from Dumbledore. I told Black no. Dumbledore said Harry was to go to his aunts and uncles, and Black argued, but in the end he gave in. Told me to take his motorbike and get Harry there. I won't need it anymore, he says. 
He should have known there was something fishy going on then. He loved that motorbike. What was he going to give it to me for? Why wouldn't he need it anymore? Fact was, it was too easy to trace. Dumbledore knew that the Potter's secret keeper. Black knew he was going to have to run that night. Knew it was a matter of hours before the ministry was after him. But what if I'd given Harry to him? I bet he'd pitch him off the bike halfway onto the sea, his best friend's son. But when a wizard goes over the dark side, there's nothing and no one that matters to them anymore. A long silence followed Hagrid's story. Then Madame Rosmerda said with some satisfaction, but he didn't manage to disappear, did he? The Ministry of Magic caught up with him the next day. Alas, if only we had said fudge bitterly it was not we who found him it was little peter pettigrew another one of potter's friends maddened by grief no doubt knowing that black had been the potter's secret keeper he went after black himself pettigrew that fat little boy who's always tagging around after them at hogwarts said madame rosmerda hero worship black and potter said professor mcgonagall never quite in their league talent wise I was often rather sharp with him. You can imagine how I regret that now. She sounded as though he had a sudden head cold. There now, Minerva, said Fudge kindly. Pedigree died as a hero's death. Eyewitness, muggles, of course. We wiped their memories later. Told us Pedigree cornered Black. They say he was sobbing. Lily and James, serious. How could you? And then he went for his wand. Well, of course, Black was quicker. Blew Pedigree into smithereens. Professor McGonagall blew her nose and said thickly, Stupid boy, foolish boy. He was always hopeless at dueling. Should have left it to the ministry. I tell you, if I got black before little Pettigrew did, I would have messed around with the Woms. I would have ripped him limb from limb, Hagrid growled. You don't know what you're talking about, Hagrid, said Fudge sharply. Nobody but trained hit wizards from the magical law enforcement squad would have stood a chance against Black once he was cornered. I was a junior minister in the Department of Magical Catastrophes at the time. I was the one first on the scene after Black murdered all those people, and I'll never forget it. I still dream about it sometimes. A crater in the middle of the street so deep it had cracked the sewer below. Bodies everywhere. Muggles screaming. And Black standing there laughing with what was left of Pettigrew in front of him. A heap of bloodstained robes and a few, few fragments. Fudge's voice stopped abruptly. There was the sound of five noses being blown. Well, there you have it, Rosemarda, said Fudge thickly. Black was taken away by 20 members of the Magical Law Enforcement Squad, and Pettigrew received the Order of Merlin, first class, which I think was some comfort to his poor mother. Black's been in Azkaban ever since. Madame Rosemarda let out a long sigh. Is it true? He's mad, Minister? I wish I could say that he was, said Fudge slowly. I certainly believe his master's defeat unhinged him for a while. The murder of Pettigrew and all those muggles was the action of a cornered and desperate man, cruel and pointless. Yet, I met Black on my last inspection of Azkaban. You know, most of the prisoners in there sit muttering to themselves in the dark. There's no sense in them. But I was shocked at how normal Black seemed. He spoke quite rationally to me. It was unnerving. You'd have thought he was merely bored. Asked if I finished with my newspaper. Cool as you please. Said he missed doing the crossword. Yes, I was astounded at how little effect the Dementor seemed to be having on him. And he was the one of the most heavily guarded in the place, you know. Dementors outside his door day and night. 
But what do you think he's broken out to do? Said Madame Rosemerta. Good gracious, minister. He's just trying to rejoin you know who, is he? I dare say that his uh, eventual plan, said Fudge evasively. But we hope to catch Black long before that. I must say, you know who alone and friendless is one thing. But give him back his most devoted servant? And I shudder to think how quickly he'll rise again. There was a small chink of glass on wood. Someone had set down their glass. You know, Cornelius, if you're dining with the headmaster, we better head back up to the castle, said Professor McGonagall. One by one, the pair of feet in front of Harry took the weight of their owners once more. Hems of cloak swung into sight, and Madame Rosemerta glittering heels disappeared behind the bar. The door of the three broomsticks opened again. There was another flurry of snow, and the teachers had disappeared. Harry, Ron, and Hermione's face appeared under the table. They were both staring at him, a loss for words.